Christians is what we've been doing here in, in a series called Religion Kills. And we are now in chapter 4 of Galatians. We're about halfway through it. And so we're going to be working through Galatians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 20 this morning. Um, so let's go ahead. If you guys would stand with me, we'll read the passage. Um, we'll stand to honor that it's God's word and not man's. We'll pray and then we'll dig into it. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that um, as we dig into your word, that we would have open hearts and minds to, to hear it, to receive it, to understand it, that it would shape us and change us, and that we would be molded by your words, God, to be conformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. They would be better understanders of who you are and what you've done for us and better doers of what you require of us. God, may we be faithful worshipers. And God, I pray that my words would be true and that I would speak only what you have for me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So as I said, we've been, we've been going through the book of Galatians. We are in chapter 4 now. And to kind of set the stage, especially for some of you who haven't been here, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is having a little bit of a difficulty. He uh, spent some time in the region of Galatia, which is central Turkey, south-central Turkey in today's map. Um, and he spent some time there telling these Gentiles, these Galatians, these Celtic people, the good news about Jesus Christ. And they received it. Um, they, they fell in love with Jesus, they became followers of Jesus, but in his time away, some false teachers who are claiming to be Jewish Christians have come in and are trying to get these, uh, these young Christians in Galatia to observe the Jewish law. And by the Jewish law, we mean uh, all the, the rules and regulations that you find, especially in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all the commandments and regulations that are there, um, 
they expect these Gentiles to obey them too. And their argument is, hey, you got a great start with Jesus. That was a good first step. But now if you want to really be right in God's eyes, if you really want to be accepted in God's eyes, if on the day of judgment you want to hear God say you're in, you better start obeying the law. You better start doing the righteousness that God demands of you or you won't be accepted. So that's kind of their position. And Paul's in the middle here in chapter 4, in the middle of an extended argument, debating with those guys, arguing against their position. And he's going to make a pretty radical claim in this passage that we're going to dig into. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So last week we talked about the distinction between a son and a slave. He, he brought up this analogy of what it means to, to be in God's kingdom as the, as the difference between a slave and a son. They look the same when they're little kids, but when they grow up, one becomes the master of everything and one becomes shackled under everything. And in Christ Jesus, we are sons, not slaves. But Paul says here, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. What Paul says, you Galatians, before you became Christians, you were enslaved to idols. You guys know that. You guys remember that. We talked about that a little bit here. We know from what we are aware of their culture um, that there was the great mother of the gods, Sibylle, whose priests castrated themselves and, and acted like women. There were sacrifices in numerous temples to Zeus. There was the worship of Hermes. They, in fact, thought that Paul was Hermes when he first told them the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were probably little courtyard sanctuaries. If you had a home, you had a little yard, you would build a little temple, a little shrine in your courtyard for the protection of Zeus. But there's only one God. And all the other claimants to be God, whatever name they come under, whatever descriptors we put on them, are simply false gods. They're idols. And Paul describes that situation as a slavery. They remembered their past life. They remembered their idolatry. They pers- all those false gods that they worship, whether Sibylle or Zeus or Hermes or whoever it was in, in their camp, but they prescribed a code of conduct, a list of ritualistic activities, a, a list of sacrifices and festivals and holidays and acts of devotion that governed their existence. And Paul says that was a slavery. That was a slavery for them. He says, but now that you have come to know God, and he almost corrects himself, says, you know what, it's even better if I say, or rather to be known by God, you have Come to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And so Paul expresses this antithesis. Before, they had no idea who the real God was. And so they were enslaved to all these false gods. All these things that were claimed to be great gods, great ideas, great religion, they were false, they were lies. And now, they've come to know the real God, and Paul says, even better, you've come to be known by God. 
And so to know God is to be known by God. And that might strike you as like a kind of an odd idea because uh, in traditional Christian belief, we believe God is all-knowing. We say he's omniscient. He knows all things. So what does it mean to be known by God or not known by God if God is all-knowing? And, and this is, a, um, this is a, a difference in how the, the ancient world both in Greek and Hebrew, understood the word no from what we mean in English. In fact, I'm, Brian, could you put that quote up there uh, by Schultz? Cool. Um, I'm going to use it after all. I'm, I'm just messing with you. I told Brian, I'm not going to use the quotes. Don't worry. Then I tell him, hey, I'm going to use the quotes. I'm just keeping them, keeping them active. In, in, the, in the biblical sense, to know God is not to struggle philosophically with his eternal essence, but rather to recognize and accept his claims. It is not some mystical contemplation, but dutiful obedience. So, in other words, the idea of knowing God is much more relational. It's not cognitive acceptance of certain facts. Like, I know 2 plus 2 is 4. All right. So it, knowledge in this sense has a very relational component. And so when we say that you're known by God, what's, what's the flip side of knowing God? Well, the flip side um, is that to, to be known by God is, is to enter into a covenant relationship with God, a relationship that, that's bilateral, that God promises certain things for us, and, and out of love and admiration for him, we do certain things for him. He enters into a relationship with us where he bestows on us all the blessings of his kingdom, all the blessings of heaven. As sons, like we talked about last week, brought into adoption as sons into his kingdom, we receive a share in his great inheritance. And so that all that God is and all that God has becomes ours. That's what it is to be known by God. And that's why Paul can express shock to to say when they are turning back to elementary principles of the world, which he calls weak and worthless. Now, this is a little bit of a a scandalous claim. He uses this term in the previous section, too. We talked about it a little bit last week. This is that word, if you were here, stoicheia. Not an easy word to translate into English because we don't have a word that means quite the same thing. And it was used for things that were set up in order, set up in a line. And so it came to be used for things like the alphabet, your ABCs. You had them, you kind of have all the letters and they kind of went into an order. And so from there, just the same way that the ABCs of a subject for us means kind of the basics, kind of took on the same flavor in ancient Greek too. It meant sort of the rudimentary principles, the fundamental principles, elementary ideas. These were the, the basic rules and regulations that governed your existence. And what's, what's crazy here is that Paul is basically equating the Jewish law with these elementary principles. In the previous passage, 
he, he talked about these, these elementary principles as their existence as, as Gentiles, as Galatians under these false gods. But here he's saying that their desire, these, these Jewish Christian false teachers are coming in and saying, you guys need to keep kosher. You guys need to obey the holidays. You guys need to follow the code of conduct prescribed in the law. And if you don't, you're not going to be right with God. And Paul is saying that those things are the elementary principles of the world. They are identical in Paul's mind to the idolatry they practiced before. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So before they were Christians, they were enslaved to Sibylle and Zeus and Hermes and all these false gods. And now, by trying to adopt the Jewish law, Paul is saying that they are engaging in idolatry. They're engaging in the worship of false god. And that is an amazing claim from a hardcore Jewish Pharisee like Paul of Tarsus. This was a guy who studied the Old Testament scriptures for his life. He probably had large chunks of them memorized. He spent his life, his early career, persecuting Christians, imprisoning them, seeing them put to death. He loves the law. He loves the Old Testament scriptures. But he says that what the Galatians are doing by adopting that law is identical to idolatry, identical to the worship of a false god. And that's a pretty scandalous claim. And here's why he's saying it. To say that obeying the Jewish law is no different than worshiping the false gods of ancient Turkey, what he's essentially saying is that religiosity, religious activity, does not lead to your acceptance before a holy and just God. So, whether it's your castration, your sacrifice of of a bull in the temple of Zeus, a small shrine in the courtyard to guarantee Zeus's protection, the wearing of phylacteries, the disavowal of pork, it will not make you right with God. And let's carry that one step forward. Staying celibate until marriage, marching alongside the downtrodden, rallying against abortion clinics, preaching in the public square, telling your friend about Jesus, inviting your neighbor to church, reading your Bible, praying, will not make you right with God. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things. Nor was the Jewish law a bad thing. But I'm saying that those things won't make you right with God. And if you pursue them as a means of attaining righteousness with God, then you have built an idol for yourself that you are worshiping rather than the God of the universe. Why? Because the key is to be known by God. When you're known by God you've entered into covenant relationship with him. And when you're known by God, you are accepted by God. When you're known by God, you've been been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. His, His sacrifice 
on the cross counting on our behalf. We've, we've overdrawn our bank accounts. And there's no relationship with the bank. If you've overdrafted your bank account, especially for more than about three days, you know that you have no relationship with the bank anymore. They do not want to talk to you until you fix the problem. And that's where we all stand with God. We have an overdrawn bank accounts, a debt of sin that is counting against us so that our relationship with God is cut off. And worse yet, we have no means to pay that debt back. But when we place our faith and trust in Christ, God credits his work to our accounts. And the balance is brought back, not just to zero, but so far above zero that we become instantly rich. Not because we've earned our wages, but because we've received a share of the inheritance that God has prepared for us. We're princes and we're princesses in the kingdom of the king of the universe. And so blessed are we in Christ, so thankful are we that we are moved to serve God, not out of an unholy fear, but out of a love and reverence that comes from relationship. And so, this is the God that loved us and accepted us. And when we try to pursue our religiosity, if we try to pursue our religious devotion as a way of gaining God's favor, we really show that we don't know who God is. And the corollary is we're unknown to God. You might remember the the story of Jesus. And he's going around preaching. He says, many will come to me on that day, meaning the day of judgment. Many will come to me on the day saying, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all kinds of great stuff in your name, Jesus. And I will say to them, Jesus said, get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. See, all of our good deeds, all of our doing, all of our working, all of our striving, if our design is to make that make ourselves right with God, what you've done is you've built up an idol, a false God. Because the real God of the universe accepts us and loves us, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Because the real God of the universe is so holy and so infinite, and so perfect that we can't possibly, can't possibly make amends for all of our wrong. But the real God of the universe is so loving, and so benevolent, and so kind, and so gracious that he provided the sacrifice of his own son, that by faith in him, we might be made right with him. And so what happens is when you make that that shift to saying, I need to do these five things, these seven things, these ten things, whatever it is, to be right in God's eyes, you've immediately said, you don't know who God is. Or you've forgotten. Because the God who exists, the God of the universe, accepts you on the basis of Christ and not on the basis of you. And we are always in danger, always in danger of conforming to the the stoicheia, the elementary principles of this world. Think for yourself 
for a minute what those are for you. We, we live in a very multicultural society. We, we all grew up in different backgrounds. We, we all, even if we're Clevelanders or, or suburbanites or city dwellers, we can't assume a common background, right? So, so think, you know, put this in your own terms for a second, but what are the, the basic teachings of your culture, of, of your upbringing, your family? What are the things your neighbors taught you about what it meant to be accepted? To be accepted before God, or, or simply to be a good person, a good citizen, to be righteous. What are those things that you were brought up being taught to be, taught to know? What we're called to do is test those things by the Word of God. Not all those things are bad. I don't know, depending on what you're thinking of, maybe they all are bad. I don't know. Um, but to the extent that we're relying on those things, whether they're religious or secular, whether they're national pride or, or whatever those things are that you were taught to be, to the extent that you're relying on those things, they've got to be thrown away. To the extent that they're incorrect or they're half-truths, they have to be thrown away. To the extent, though, that they are just part of who you are and you don't rely on them and they're good things, they can be okay to hold on to. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So this is what's baffling Paul. He's like, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Before he's talked about circumcision, he's talked about uh, eating uh, pork and shellfish and things like this, and now he's going to the Jewish calendar. And so apparently these Galatians are adopting the Jewish calendar. They're, they're celebrating Sabbaths. They're probably celebrating Rosh Hashanah. They're celebrating Yom Kippur. They're celebrating Passover. They're celebrating new moon festivals that were required in the Old Testament law. Um, they're probably celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And those are the seasons. Hard to know what, what they're talking about with years that might be sabbatical years that the Old Testament law talks about. And, and the, observ the observation of these, these dates and calendars and stuff wasn't the problem in itself. Right? Those things weren't necessarily bad. In fact, Paul himself celebrated Pentecost. Paul himself still participated in some temple worship. So, again, the law itself wasn't inherently bad. It wasn't entirely evil. It's what they did with it. The problem here is that the Galatians were adopting customs that were not part of their cultural tradition in order to make themselves more acceptable to God. And that's where the problem came in. It became popular, still is a little bit popular. I think it's fading a little bit, but it became popular with the late Gen X crowd and the millennial crowd, who most of us fit in there, uh, especially a few years ago, to adopt these highly liturgical forms of worship in order to deepen their spirituality. Um, I can remember when I was in college, just after college, there was these couple mass exoduses uh, to the Greek Orthodox and Anglican traditions. Um, Later, the so-called emergent church movement uh, conscripted some of these traditions into their postmodern pantheon. And, and there's nothing wrong with these liturgies per se. In fact, we tried to bring some liturgical elements into our service last week. There's nothing wrong with those things. 
But when a person adopts uh, a foreign custom that's not part of their heritage, their culture, their background, um, in order to better commune with God, they've missed the point. They've missed the point. In other words, the, the point isn't that you need some sort of external ritual to grow closer to Jesus Christ, to be in right relationship with God. And, and what's so scandalous to Paul is that these Celtic Turkish people are adopting the culture and, and festivals and religiosity of a totally different group who lives hundreds of miles away. And Paul's like, why would you even do that? That doesn't make you closer to God. I mean, if you think it's neat, okay, sure, fine, but that doesn't make you right with God. That doesn't, that doesn't do anything for your soul. And in fact, if you're relying on those things to increase your level of spirituality, you've missed it. And so don't hear me saying that everyone that I ever knew who, who went to the Anglican church or the Orthodox church or is a bad person. That's not what I'm saying, but what I'm, what I'm saying is that I saw in the heart of some of them that, that they thought that they could get more spiritual by, by going through something that was foreign to them. The foreignness to them made it feel more spiritual. And, and that's just not it. If, if, if we're not close to God, it's not an external ritual. It's in here. Do I know God? Or better yet, am I known by God? It's the same thing with all the, the worship debates we sometimes have. Maybe you're feeling it a little bit this morning because our style of worship this morning was, was different. Maybe a little awkward. Um, and it's not our preference. So it was a little weird. But if you go into a church and you don't like the style of, of music or the style of not music, for that matter, and you're struggling with that, the problem's here. Okay? The problem's here. Because if, if God is being praised in truth, but it doesn't matter if it's a hymn. It doesn't matter if it's done on an organ. It doesn't matter if it's done with a guitar. It doesn't matter if it's electric or acoustic. It doesn't matter if it's all spoken or if it's all sung. But the bottom line is, is that the worship of God is about God and our relationship with him, our connection to him. And so, again, if you're striving for these external features of your faith, and hanging your spirituality on that, you might be in danger of making God into something that he's not. And when we cast God in our own image, it's a form of idolatry. But if you're in Christ, you are known by God. You're accepted. You have all of God. You have access to the throne room. And you don't need to do anything to get closer, to have more, to be right with him. When you make that move, you've committed idolatry. You love the forms rather than the former. You love the created things rather than the creator. And for Paul, the Galatians were adding a very foreign religious custom. And so that gives Paul pause. I am afraid, verse 11, I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's saying all the... The toil I did, all the, the persecutions. The, you remember, guys, that time I was stoned and drug out of the city? Do you remember when they chased me out of just about every one of your guys' cities in Galatia? Do you remember all the persecution? Do you remember all the late nights? Do you remember how I, I worked with leather and canvas 
during the day to support my ministry so that I didn't have to charge you guys money. And then at night, I would preach to you guys in one man's house and then another man's house. Do you remember all that work I did? Now I'm worried that it might have been worthless. If the Galatians make this move, then it's evidence that they were never known by God. It's evidence that they might actually be lost. And it scares Paul just a little bit. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. What he's saying, as he said earlier, I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Nobody kept the loss more strictly than I did. But I made my life like the life of a Gentile because I loved you guys and I wanted you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So become like me. Become a Gentile again. This is what you are at your heart. God isn't asking you to become something you're not. God isn't asking you to stop being Asian. God's not asking you to stop being black or white. God is not asking you to stop being a woman or stop being a man. He's asking you to worship him as he is and how he made you. You don't need to to change the way God made you. You're accepted. You're a son of the king. Accept that. Paul goes into this autobiography. He's, He's frustrated here. He says, you did me no wrong. You know, it was a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. We don't know the details on that, but obviously something happened to Paul that led him to be in Galatia or be stuck in Galatia. Um, And and the Galatians would have done anything for him. So You guys would have torn your eyes out and given them to me if necessary. That's how close this relationship is. And so, so Paul talks sternly at a few points. He calls them fools. He calls them foolish. He also calls them brothers. He calls them my children. Keep in mind, though, that when Paul talks harshly, he, he, he speaks out of a deep relationship with these people. Sometimes Christians read, I think, something Paul says that sounds kind of harsh, and they think, oh, that gives me license to say harsh things. But it doesn't unless you've had this kind of relationship with them. And Paul is feeling like, have I then become your enemy, in verse 16, by telling you the truth? You feel that way when you, when you love someone, you care about them, and, and you only want their best, and, and you're trying to help them, and they turn on you? I think most of us have probably experienced that in some small way, sometimes a large way. And that's how Paul is starting to feel here. The, these false teachers are, are poisoning these young Christians against him. And he, all he's trying to do is tell them the truth. Paul, the truth is almost always the good news about Jesus Christ. I've been telling you the gospel. I've been telling you the good news. I've been telling you that you're accepted, that you're okay, that you're sons. And now you're telling me that we're on bad terms. But here's here's the danger. And this is oftentimes the case with false teachers. It says they make much of you in verse 17, but for no good purpose. Maybe another way to put that is they zealously pursue you. They desire to, to make you... They're disciples, they're followers, they want to get you. But not for a good reason. Paul says they want to shut you out, that you make much of them. What he's saying is, they're, in a way, they're playing hard to get. Okay, they're saying, hey, we're Jews, we're really faithful, we're accepted before God, 
you can't have what we got. Well, why can't we have what you got? Uh, because you guys don't keep the law. You guys don't eat the right foods. You don't follow all the festivals. Now, if you were to do that, you know, then you'd be accepted by God. You'd be like us. You know, and, that, and putting that kind of barrier, that wall there, is, is their way of, of getting people to be jealous of what they've got and, and want to come into it. And it, it makes Paul honestly sad. He says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. So all over this letter, Paul is going from really stern, really angry, to oh, my children, oh, my friends, my brothers. You know, he, he's all over the place. You feel these conflicted emotions because he's seen all this happen from hundreds of miles away and from reports that he gets from friends. And he can't be there. Ever been in that situation? Ever been in that situation where you know that someone you really care about is far away, you can't do anything for them, but you keep hearing the bad news and you just don't know how to help. There's nothing you can do. And that's kind of how Paul is feeling here. He wishes if he was there, he would know exactly how deep the problem is, exactly who is in the problem and who's not in the problem, and he'd be able to change his tone. And he's frustrated. He's perplexed. He's confused. But his desire is that Christ be formed in them. When we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit enters our lives, starts to convict us of sin, starts to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Our hope and our, our goal is Christ-likeness. We know that as we, we live on this earth, the Spirit is constantly chiseling away at us. You know, the, when the old sculptors of, of old, the Michelangelos, they would start with a big block of marble or whatever it was, and they would start chiseling away. And, and, and that's really what the Spirit is doing in our lives, is just is slowly chiseling away until the image of Jesus Christ is all that's left in our life. And that, that's what he's doing, and, and Paul so desperately wants to see that in them, and they're in danger of losing it. Because they can't accept that they're accepted. They can't accept that they're known by God. And that inability to accept that they're known by God is evidence that perhaps they're not. So, where are you at with that? Are you known by God? Do you know God? Have you come to a point where you've seen that Jesus Christ is real, that his sacrifice on the cross paid for your way, that his resurrection from the dead guaranteed that that debt was gone forever, that by faith in him, you can receive new life, you can be adopted as sons into the kingdom, that you stand known by God. If not, that's there for the taking, that's there for you this day. 
And if you have, where in your life are you being tempted to re-earn your place before God? What are the, the things in your life that are pulling you to say, I need to be right with God. I need to do more of this. I need to do more of that. I need to do X, Y, and Z to be right with God. What are those things in your life? I can almost guarantee that each one of you has got a few of those things. Throw them away. Throw away that clinging to them as your righteousness. It's not your righteousness. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. Jesus Christ is your acceptance. Jesus Christ is your whole. Set those things aside. Write your perspective. Maybe you need to pick them back up then. Not as things that get you right with God, but things that because you're right with God and because you love him so much, you willingly grab them and you take them and you carry them out of an overflow of love. Then do that. But if you're still clinging to them as the things that make you right, then you have an idol. And that idol needs to be torn down. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you accept us. I, I thank you, God, that you accepted me. I, I thank you, God, that you're willing to accept all who turn in faith to you. And I pray, God, for those who have not yet come to that point, that they would know that you wait with open arms to accept and to receive and to adopt into your family all who would come. And I pray for those of us who have come by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would know that his blood has filled our bank accounts full and that we would stop trying to earn our way back to you, that we would stop trying to make ourselves good citizens, that we would stop trying to make ourselves righteous people, good Christians, good religious people, good neighbors, but that we would understand that we are right before you. And I pray, God, that you would break us and fill us with thankfulness and an overflowing love for you that moves us to do all that we think that religion demands of us and so much more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.